Welcome to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. I'm Alexis Christophorus. As the stock market continues to hit all-time highs, Song Lee, co-CEO of one of the country's largest private equity firms, the Carlyle Group, sees no immediate risk of recession. Lee sat down with me recently at Yahoo Finance's All-Market Summit in New York City to share his thoughts on the economy, the U.S.-China trade war, and why it's still hip to be a private company. Here's our conversation. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Thank you all for being here with us and to all of you online watching as well. Kyusung Lee, thanks so much for being here. I'm happy to be here. So I'd like to begin with the political climate we're in right now and how that that relates to your business at the Carlyle Group. So this past week, we saw an escalation in the trade war between the U.S. and China. And looking at your portfolio at the Carlyle Group, you have lots of different companies. There's a lot of geographic diversity. How exposed are you to Asia, to China? specifically, and I'm curious if what's happening with trade has changed your strategy at all. Sure. So we have, just to answer your question, we have about 10%, a little bit less than 10% of our assets on our our private equity side in China. China is a very important region. Uh, It's a great partner, uh, and it's very important for the global economy for China to continue to to grow. Uh, And I think uh, we have lots of great partners in China. Now, I do think the macros are something that we do keep uh, a very close eye on. But investing, actually, for us, is very much more about management teams, the companies, the business plan, and what can that management team accomplish in terms of growing businesses. And when you look at it through that lens, and also through the lens of we're very long-term oriented. Our business plans are five, 10 years. Mm -hmm. And through that lens, we hope that we, you know, we believe in fair trade, we believe in free trade, we think the authorities will figure something out here, but over a longer term perspective, uh, our view very much is um, that there are lots of great investment opportunities in that part of the world. So you're not uh, lessening your exposure to that area no, at all? No, no, okay. we're, we're, we're pretty optimistic about the fact that over the long term, we're all gonna figure this out, we have to all get along, we're all gonna grow together, and uh, we're, we're quite bullish on opportunities in China over the long term. All right, now Carlyle has $210 billion of assets under management. You talk to lots of CEOs. I'm curious what your clients are telling you. What is their biggest worry right now? Well, I mean, clearly the, the uncertainty in the environment is something that has to worry everybody, but you know, if you, if you break it down, in terms of the real economy, the U.S. is pretty strong. Um, in fact, it's, it's the, uh, we, we have all of our portfolio companies uh, provide data to us, so we're always analyzing it. And the U.S., the underlying growth rate has actually accelerated from last year. We are seeing, however, Europe uh, uh, slow down a bit, and China certainly has slowed down a little bit. And I think the, the current view is, how long can this go on where the U.S. keeps uh, propelling the global economy forward? Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, against that backdrop, central banks have started to diverge in monetary policy. So the U.S. is actually trying to raise rates, as we all know. Uh, Europe is trying to figure it out. Japan is somewhere in between. But China is certainly lowering rates. And whenever you have divergent monetary policy and a decoupling, because there is disconnected growth right now. The U.S. is, is, is forging ahead, where, and the rest of the uh, global economy is, is, is trying to keep up. Mm-hmm. Whenever you have that type of divergent policy, it, it sets up for very volatile exchange rates, which we've seen, and it sets up maybe, the, if we're not careful, for a policy mistake, and, and that wouldn't be fun either. So these are the types of things we're worried about, but in the short to medium term, 
certainly the U.S. economy is still showing real strength. The, the question is how long can this continue in light of all the other stuff that's going on? What would you define as a policy mistake on the part of the Federal Reserve? Oof, uh, I'll tell you after it happens. <laughs> um, Hindsight's twenty twenty. Exactly. I mean, look, I think you have to focus on the fact that right now, while uh, the long end has gone up a little bit over the past two, three days, the yield curve is still historically incredibly flat. Uh, uh, inversions of the yield curve uh, are pretty darn predictive about recessions. Um, five out of five of the past recessions have been predicted accurately by an inverted yield curve. Nine out of 10 since 1951. Uh, so I think we have to think very hard about uh, can the U.S. go it along, uh, al um, you know, alone? Right. And as we raise rates, what does that mean? And what does that do to exchange rates, emerging market debt, uh, in, in, in denominating U.S. dollars is is, a, is an issue. So there are a whole bunch of things that makes it a little bit confusing. But that's what makes it fun too, in terms of uh, trying to find <laughs> investment opportunities. You speak of recession. Uh, this past Saturday was right. the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers sure. and the subsequent financial crisis. Are you worried at all that the next crisis is looming? And I'm curious what you believe right. the catalyst might be for that? You know, I, I, we, do, we do think about this a lot. Um, here's how I would characterize it as slightly different than 10 years ago. Um, the growth in the global economy and in the U.S. has been what I would say low and steady. You didn't really see a bounce back. Um, and that low and steady growth has, uh, has happened in a way where there aren't really a lot of excesses in the economy. You don't really see massive amount of uh, leverage or, I mean, you know, may, a small little asset class are here or there may, be, there may be some speculative behavior, but you're not really seeing huge bubbles with, fueled with financial leverage. Um, so, you know, that's the first major point I'd make in the sense that uh, that makes it really hard for there to be a, a really bad event uh, in terms of a, a recession. Second, um, I, I just keep going back to there is real uh, underlying strength and momentum um, in the economy. And as, as long as that doesn't uh, get derailed in any uh, terrible way, mm -hmm. uh, you, could, you could see this thing kind of lumbering along for a little bit longer. Now, having said that, you know, our crystal ball is not that good past you know, a year. Really? Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> you uh, can't see past uh, that year. Maybe, maybe you know, fifteen <laughs> months. But uh, uh, for for the next year, I, I don't think we really see global recession by any stretch. And I, there's too much strength in the U.S. economy. I think thereafter, the the jury's out uh, as to whether or not all this uncertainty that we're seeing in the markets today actually feeds back into. Uh, confidence and investment and spending. And so it'll be really interesting to see what the fourth quarter numbers are uh, at the end of this year mm -hmm. uh, and what that, uh, uh, how that influences policy and, uh, and behavior. Now, I don't have to tell you that uh, for a long while, it was very hip to be private, right? Lots of companies. It were, still is hip to be private. <laughs> they were shunning the public market. And I, I actually have a chart I'd like to bring up if we can to show folks how the IPO market has performed over the past uh, 10 years or so. And as you can see there, that chart starts at 1999, for those who remember, uh, about 468 companies went public that year. And that was just before, of course, the tech bubble. So lots of companies that went public then are not around anymore. And then you see a, a, a drop off, a quite a, a sharp drop off in the, in the next few years. Things are starting to come back now and over the past, from, I could say 2015 onward. And the beginning of next year is supposed to be a big one, Qsong, for those unicorns, sure. like the Ubers of the world, because they need an exit strategy for these investors. Sure. Um, how do you compete with that now? Or has the tide sort of turned and is it now hip to be? 
public. No, it's still hip to be private. <laughs> the, um, well, if you go back 20 years, I think the peak IPO, uh, number of IPOs uh, in the States was just under 700 IPOs, so something like 675, 677. Year to date this year, I believe the numbers are about 120. There is clearly a trend towards uh, companies uh, not going, uh, accessing the public markets. Furthermore, the average age of a private company going public is about 11 years now versus it used to be eight years. Hmm. So even those that are going public are waiting a little bit longer. And, uh, and as many of you know, um, the number of public companies that exist today are about half the rate that existed 20 years ago. So like the Wilshire 5000, there are only 3,500 component companies in this thing they call the Wilshire 5000. Um, and, and you have to ask yourself why. Mm -hmm. and if you think about it, you, you, you went public to access capital, or maybe you went public because it was an important branding event, or you needed it to attract more management. Um, the role of private equity, private capital, we can provide all that capital. Uh, we can brand a company and help a company develop its brand and its markets as well as anyone else. And we have a ton of value-added um, uh, uh, services that we provide through our network, uh, through our human capital management, through IT, through you know, leverage uh, purchasing, uh, just introducing them to new customers, bringing them to China, bringing them to Japan, bringing them to, to Latin America. There's so much more value that we add that I think it's not so much a function of the scrutiny and the cost of being public. I think entrepreneurs and private uh, and, and management teams are understanding they can actually grow and build their company for a lot longer with mm. private capital as partners than they could if they were public. Now, that's not to say there isn't a role for public capital, because sh surely there is a role, mm -hmm. but I think the whole trend of private capital uh, is just gonna continue. And it's not just private equity. Uh, think about it in terms of infrastructure now. Uh, think about real estate, obviously, already, but private credit is also growing uh, at twice, almost twice the rate of private equity. So there are a whole bunch of reasons why the role of private capital and the value out of private capital and the speed and the certainty and, and kind of uh, the value that we can provide above and beyond the money is, is something that I think is just gonna keep growing in the global economy. What about regulation? Are the regulations too onerous for companies to go public? It's not fun being a public company. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's uh, a lot of regulatory scrutiny. Uh, look, rules are important. You need transparency. Um, there is a certain cost to being public. It also potentially forces you to be more short-term oriented, whereas we like to be very long-term oriented in terms of how to, how to help uh, partner with these companies to, to enable them to grow. So I, I, th I do think there are soft and some hard costs uh, involved with being public. You became co-CEO of uh, the Carlyle Group back in January, along with Glenn Youngkin. Sure. And first I have to ask, how is that going, being a co-CEO? Because you know, for some personalities, right. that would be very challenging. I mean, right. when the buck's supposed to stop with the CEO, and in essence, you're splitting the buck. Like this. Yeah, how's yeah. that working? Uh, for, it's, been, it's been great. <laughs> Glenn's been terrific. Uh, we're, we're great partners. But I think it, it, it I think it's, uh, it doesn't work for all companies. And what people have to understand is, Carlyle was a company founded in partnership and the whole culture of the company is about partnership. Uh, we, we had three founders uh, and uh, they've now moved to new roles. And so the whole notion of being partnered with and working together is, is just, it's just, it's just the way Carlisle works. So for us, uh, it's not been a problem at all. Uh, we're very complimentary. He has certain businesses that he oversees. I have certain businesses that I oversee and we're always synced up 
with respect to the, the most important issues at the firm. So, so far, so good. Okay, glad to hear it. You've made some big purchases, too, since you've become co-CEO. The most recent was in the insurance industry, uh, taking a majority stake in Sedgwick for $6.7 billion. What was attractive to you there, and, and why at that valuation? Sure. Uh, well, valuations are high right now, so I'm not going to make the case to say we, we, uh, we bought this uh, at a relatively inexpensive uh, price. Um, but Cedric is a terrific company uh, run by, by a terrific management team. And it is incredibly stable. It is a market leader. And it is what uh, I call a perfect uh, example of a thesis where you're paying uh, a full price for a really great company and team. And um, it, it balances really well, though, with the portfolio that we've constructed in our US buyout um, uh, funds, which is the, the, one of the first deals we did was a very large uh, specialty chemical company, a little bit more cyclical. Again, number one, number two in all of its markets, but more industrial focused, uh, uh, called Axo Nobel, $12.5 billion. And then we also have in portfolio a, a really nice growth situation in a company called One Medical, which is trying to change the way primary care gets delivered in the United States uh, with a terrific entrepreneur. Uh, when you think about portfolio construction, and that's the way we think about investing at Carlisle, I like the fact that we have this market-leading, uh, specialty chemical company, Global, with a uh, uh, you know really stable uh, insurance services administrative business, mm -hmm. uh, along with a, a growth-oriented in one of the, the best sectors uh, in the in the global economy, looking to disrupt and 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 do better things for consumers and on a really fast ramp. Uh, that's how we think about investing, mm -hmm. uh, and so Cedric fits really nicely into that. So what in, I'm hearing healthcare in here, energy, what are sure. the areas where you see opportunity right well, now? Well, I think, you know, it's really hard to, 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 to be overly uh, general about that, but, but clearly globally healthcare is, is a sector that we see tremendous opportunity in. Uh, you, you have to say tech, and, and it's not only the disruptive aspect of tech, but it, it's the, uh, the opportunities uh, that's, uh, that are being created as in industries converge. Mm -hmm. um, energy is an incredibly capital consumptive uh, sector. It's been underinvested in over the past five years or so, and I think there's, there's opportunity there. But it, it's all very granular. Japan, I think, has terrific opportunity. I mean, it's an economy that people think uh, is not really growing. Japan has grown uh, uh, for Japan quite nicely over the past uh, five years. And we see real restructuring opportunity as private companies want to work with private equity. Mm -hmm. But also the large conglomerates in Japan are spinning off, divesting, or or reshaping their businesses mm -hmm. and are seeing now private equity as a real partner to help them accomplish their needs. So you know, we see big opportunity in Japan as well. You talked about high valuations a moment ago. Yeah. Uh, stock market's on a tear here, at least in the US. Right. Just, just this morning right now, the Dow is up more than 200 points. Is the stock market uh, the asset class to be in right now? Might there be a little bit of irrational exuberance going on? Oof, predicting where the stock market is going is, is not good for my We're future. making you look in that crystal exactly. ball again. The, uh, the, you know, the, the market actually, relative to growth, um, the public markets actually seem more fairly valued than they were uh, a while back. Uh, so again, the, 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 the important thing to understand is that U.S. real economy seems to be continuing to do okay. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I confess in the private markets, valuations are exceptionally high. And it's driven by the fact that so much money has flowed into the uh, private capital markets. There's probably a trillion dollars of, of um, available capacity 
to, to invest uh, in, the, in our industry. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's a combination of that versus the fact that our returns in the industry have been so successful over the past three to five years that currently, on average, for every dollar of capital that we call from our limited partners to invest in new deals, we're already returning a dollar three of profit. Mm -hmm. So they have, they're flush with, our, our investors are flush with cash, our returns have been great, and they're looking to continue deploying our asset class because our relative outperformance versus the stock market, 500 to 1,000 basis points, has continued. And as a result, uh, more money has flowed into our, our sector, and that has caused valuations to remain high uh, in the private markets. Would you still say, though, that the biggest risk for the investor is, is being underinvested, even in this market? Yeah, you know, it, the, we are not market timers, and I think uh, some, some people are great at it. Their crystal ball is, is perfect. Um, market timing can be very, very dangerous. And I think um, it's not about being overexposed when things go down. It's about being underexposed uh, when uh, you have a very low yield environment. If you're underallocated, underexposed to uh, our asset class, your returns are really going to suffer. And so sometimes when I go around the world talking to CEOs and CIOs of, of major sovereign wealth funds and, and all the large institutional um, um, clients of ours, uh, a lot of them will confess to me that their biggest issue right now is being underallocated mm -hmm. and underexposed to uh, the alternative markets and to the private markets. And lastly, I'd like to ask, what keeps you up at night? <laughs> it doesn't have to be business related. Right. Well, you know, the, the, um, at Carlisle, it's all about investment performance. We're an investment firm, and when you're an investment firm, it's all about finding that next opportunity and delivering great returns. So we live and die by our returns, and it is a very challenging uh, environment. There's tons of opportunity, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out how difficult uh, it is in such a complicated world. So I stay up at night uh, thinking about how are we going to responsibly deploy, invest, manage all this money on behalf of our, our clients. And uh, it's not easy, but uh, it's fun. And get them those returns. Q Song <laughs> Lee of the Carlisle Group, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. If you would like to see our conversation or check out other interviews from our All Market Summit, just click on yahoofinanceams.com. Be sure to rate, review, and share this podcast, and remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode.